Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, there might be a potential solution to ransomware, a bug that's been around for 15 years and cost Citigroup $7 million, and Dropbox's middle-out compression. Plus, there's a brand-new drive-by flaw that affects all versions of Windows, your great questions, our answers, and a packed roundup. All that and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 275 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode on July 14th. 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this year's show goes on. Oh, our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. It's good to be back with you. Big thank you to Noah for filling in last week. He flew all the way out here from Grand Forks to Seattle just so that way he could sit in and honor the institution that is TechSnap and keep it as high quality as possible. So big props to Noah for uh, making the trip out here. And then, of course, like every uh, person who's responsible for mini systems, he had a horrendous emergency, a technical catastrophe, and had to fly out after the episode and get back to Grand Forks and <laughs> save the day, as most of yeah. us have been in those situations before. So thank you to Noah big time. And uh, Alan, it would be no exaggeration to say today's a big show. You got a lot of news to cover, a lot of stories. So four stories instead of three. Oh my! <laughs> no, you know, see, you say it like that, but when you go as when you go into as much detail as you do for each story, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, and this one looks like a good one too. It's coming from the Register.co.uk. Programming bug cost Citigroup seven million dollars after some legit transactions were mistaken for test data for fifteen years. Yeah. So this isn't, we thought that old data from 1999 was test data and we didn't realize until now. It was, no, we were classifying a chunk of real data every day as tested when it really wasn't. <laughs> oh uh, it's like, are you really doing testing every day and expected that much test data? It's, anyway. I mean, that's like, that's like not noticing it. I mean, yeah. at that point, you must almost think, well, these names are real. I mean, wow, I can only imagine it. Having worked in a bank and having worked with test customer data and having very clear delineations between the test network and the production network. I just, that, this, this yep. flabbergasts me. Yeah, so this is a, a bug that kind of sat in the code. When, when you hear the explanation, it makes perfect sense. Okay, okay. And you're just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Citigroup, which is a big U.S. financial institution, is being fined for failing to properly report to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission about a number of transactions. According to the SEC, which uh, they have a PDF here about the their litigation on it, uh, says the error resulted in the financial regulator not being sent uh, complete blue sheet information for a remarkable 15 years between May of 1999 and April of 2014. So the banks uh, was required to send details of all stock transactions uh, back to the SEC and due to a bug, a number of branches were never included in those reports and that data was basically never sent for the whole 15 year period. But the details of the story are quite amusing. So okay. The mistake was discovered by Citigroup itself when it was asked to send a large but precise chunk of trading data to the SEC in April of 2014 and asked its technical support team to help identify which internal ID numbers they should run a request on. Uh, 
This team quickly noted that some branches' trades were not being included in the automated system and alerting... Uh, so, so when they ran the report on a certain branch, it came back with nothing. And you're like, that, that can't be that right. What's right. going on here? Yeah. Uh, and so they reported the problem to their higher-ups. And uh, four days later, they had a patch in place that solved the problem. But it wasn't until eight months later that the company finished uh, its formal report and found out that it, the error had affected their SEC reports going all the way back to uh, 1999. Yikes. So after they did that, a month later in uh, January of 2015... They told the SEC about the mistakes. <laughs> so, By the way, we made this little boo-boo. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we spent some time investigating it and found out that, yeah, we've been lying to you for 15 years. Which means they've been violating federal security laws. And they actually yeah. had to cite exactly which laws and acts that they've been violating. <laughs> how embarrassing. Yeah. So it turns out that the error was a result of how the company introduced its new alphanumeric branch codes. Mm. So when the system was first built in the mid-90s, the program code uh, filtered out any transactions that had the branch ID between 089 and 100. So basically, if if your branch ID was in the 90s or the 100s, it didn't get included in the report and they used that for test data. Sure. Right. So, you know, 017028 whatever all that was fine but if you had one of these in the one in this range it would be considered you know it's like oh the, at the very end of the range we reserve these for test data so it's not a hard line but it's something they all observe and practice but, well this is uh no this is just in the program that Citibank wrote themselves for their own oh this is at the program, program level okay yeah so basically in the program that Citibank wrote to manage all their transactions they reserve this range for test data sure okay uh, when they wrote that in the mid-90s, so mm-hmm. thinking of like 95. Yeah, right? okay. <clears throat> so any transaction with a branch code within that range was considered test data and was not reported to the government because that would really confuse the government. Uh, but in 1998, the company started using alphanumeric branch codes instead of just uh, three-digit numbers. Uh, and as it's expanded its uh, business and got more branches, right? Among these were the codes 10B, uh-huh. 10C, uh-huh. and so on. Uh, <laughs> Which the system treated as being within the range of uh, 089 to <laughs> 100. Course. Even though 10B technically really isn't in the range up to a 100, right? <laughs> uh, if you're doing hex or something, you would, you know, 10B would be a much higher number. But no matter what, you would think 10B is, is not between 89 and 100. Mm-hmm. But the way their program compared it, it mm-hmm. was, right? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing because they just turned the letters into zeros or something. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the branches 10B, 10C, 10D, et cetera, uh, were returned, uh, were excluded because they were in that they, in the testing range. And so those uh, reports were never sent to the SEC. Or sure. The reports that were sent to the SEC never included data from those particular branches. Right. Huh. It says uh, the SEC routinely... Uh, sends requests to financial institution asking them to send all details on transactions between some specific dates as a way of checking that nothing untoward is going on. The coding error had resulted in Citigroup failing to send information on 26,810 transactions Whoa. Uh, over a total of 2,300 reports that they sent. Whoa. Yeah, so that's a, an average of, what's that, like 10 transactions missing or 15 transactions missing off each report that they sent 2,300 of over the course of 15 years. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing, too, to consider about all of these is uh, 
banks merge with other banks that have existing standards and systems systems in place. And so being able to just say, we'll always use these number ranges is almost impossible because you, when you buy another bank and you start integrating their system with yours, you have no idea what decisions they've made too. So it seems like eventually this was a ticking time bomb. They were going to hit this problem yep. one way or another. And it seems like it was something they set up in 1995 and forgot about until <laughs> 2014. Yep. Yeah. And banks just, you know, classically just will. If once a piece of technology is installed and it's working, you keep it running and you make it work uh, because that's an investment. And well, honestly, there's some logic is, to it, too. And anything that if you're going to build something new, then that has, all has to go through all the testing and the certification right. and all this stuff. Right. There's some serious logic to it. And also, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe I'm going too far into this, but there's also some entrenched interests. Like there are there are people who are... Um, you know, this is they've worked with this system their entire life because that's been the technology's that old now. It's like their entire career. And so for them, they have an interest in continuing to use that technology because it's their expertise. And uh, it creates kind of an interesting dynamic just trying to move maybe the stack forward sometimes. There's yeah. a lot of reasons why a program could be around for 15 years, especially especially in a financial or government institution. There's a lot of reasons. Right. Uh, you know, in the FreeBSD project, we're often surprised. It's like, you're still using FreeBSD 2. What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, sure. or, you know, your embedded system is still based on FreeBSD 6? Oh, man, that, isn't that, that happens like in Linux too all the time, yeah. the embedded thing. Yeah. Holy smokes. Well, this isn't even necessarily embedded. This is like bigger appliances that are off-the-shelf type things. But huh. it's like, well, that's what we built our software on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Crazy thing. So the SEC was not impressed and said in their statement <laughs> that announced the fine that failure to disclose the coding error and to produce the missing data for many years uh, potentially impacted numerous commission investigations. Hmm. I bet. Yeah. Oh, well, especially the fact that Citibank knew about it and then they spent eight months compiling a report to see how bad it was and then they waited a couple more months before actually telling the SEC. Uh, I think maybe if they had even told them just at the beginning of 2014 when they first found the problem, instead of waiting till 2015, that might have uh, made the SEC slightly less angry. Yeah, this means that during the 2008 crash and investigation, they might have been getting them giving them bad yes, information. Although, uh, looking at it, looks like they only missed uh, on average 10 records per report. So maybe that wasn't actually that. Like in total, over the 15 years, they only missed. 16 or 26,000 lines of report. Yeah. And I'm guessing there are thousands, you know, millions of lines of report in total, right? That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not, not going to be a big impact. Right. Uh, but it could have been, right? Let's say uh, broker dealers have a core responsibility to promptly provide the SEC with accurate and complete trading data for us to analyze during enforcement investigations, uh, says Robert Cohen, the co chief of the SEC Enforcement Division's Market Abuse Unit. Uh, Citigroup did not uh, live up to that responsibility for an ex uh, inexcusably long period of time and may, uh, it must pay the largest penalty to date for blue sheet violations. Although, you know, $7 million doesn't seem like that high of a fine for something that went on for 15 years. And, yeah. And the fact that that's the biggest fine they've ever given out means that they've not given out very many big fines. Especially when, you're, when, you, when you consider the kind of money that these institutions make. $7 million is really not much. That's Although not The even. interesting one is that, you know, that nobody noticed this sooner. Um, you know, like the way they, they said here that, you know, C Group was not living up to his responsibilities uh, for such an inexcusably long time. But... It's a little different when Citibank didn't know either that they weren't doing it. They yeah. They, but, you know, that's not a defense because, I, yeah, I didn't know that was happening. So what? you cannot, according to the government, you can fail to live up to an important responsibility for 15 years 
and you walk away with a seven million dollar fine. Where it's what is, what exactly is the incentive to follow the rules in this scenario? Because there's no way following the rules is is cheaper. <laughs> there's just no way. Like I don't know, it just drives me crazy. It's, it, it, because it's the same logic that applies to not updating your IT infrastructure. I mean, hang with me here, but it's the same logic. They look at it. I mean, I, we've talked about it before. Well, it it costs us more to be proactive and constantly replace, update, take systems offline, have outages while we update, whatever. It's whatever their excuse is. We'd rather just run the roll the dice, run the risk, and if we get a compromise, we'll pay the money then. And in the long run, we pay less. And it's the same kind of thinking that leads to these horrible IT infrastructures for these cloud services that we all sign up for, and then our data gets compromised. Yep, it's called technical debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's interesting things going on there, and uh, yeah. Exactly. Well said. Uh, I want to take a moment. And <laughs> really, I want to take a moment. I want to thank Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. It's one of the sponsors here of the show. And a big thank you to Ting. I was using the MiFi from Ting on the road trip. And one of the great things is when that MiFi works, it's so wonderful because it's got the CDMA, it's got the LCD screen with all that stuff on there, but it's CDMA, mine is, uh, which got me most of the way. When I got into a certain couple of different locations, though, it was really nice to have GSM available as well. And that's what's great about Ting, is it's CDMA and GSM, so you can pick it based on what's best for your connectivity, and then it's just pay for what you use wireless. It's really simple. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and whatever you've used, that's what you pay. It's $6 for a line. There's no contract. But full stop, No, nothing else need to be said. At this moment, you should go to Ting, and you should buy one of their SIM cards. This deal's only as good as, well, either supplies last or their CFO gets back from vacation. They're selling their SIM card for a dollar. There's no contract that comes with the SIM card. You activate it when you need it, and now you have GSM service in anything you put it in for a dollar. TechSnap.ting.com, when you use that URL, you will also get $25 in service credit. So whatever you put this $1 SIM card into, you can use for up to $25 of Ting service. If that's, the, if that's a phone, if that's data, whatever it is. Now, my, for three phones, my service is like $35, bucks. So you, you're gonna, for the $25 service credit and a $1 SIM card, holy smokes. Now, you can buy entire phones from Ting or you can bring your own device. It's a really great network with fantastic customer service, a great website to manage it all, and a crazy, crazy sale on SIM cards. Check them out at techsnap.ting.com and go get yourself a $1 card. That might be on Amazon, too. Let me check. They do sell them there, too. Um, <clears throat> Ting Sim. Let's see. Yeah, it's still nine dollars on Amazon. So if you go get it, if you go get it from Ting too, they're doing a deal on the shipping. So you, so they get yes. oh, free priority mail shipping. Yeah, that is. <laughs> it's a, really just one dollar. TechSnap.Ting.com. Uh, get the one dollar SIM card while you can. There's no contract. You don't ever have to turn it on. But then if you come across a device or a you know a used tablet or something, whatever it could be. And you want to throw a SIM card in it and give it wireless data connectivity that's just pay for what you use. <laughs> just buy it now, use it later. TechSnap.ting.com or try switching your plan over. It's pretty great. They also have a savings calculator if you want to give it a try. Okay, Alan. So we got a new system to potentially detect ransomware by... Yes. It's like a new means. Tell me all about this because this is more and more of a problem. Yes. Uh, so this is research out of the University of Florida. And they've 
uh, develop a new system and say, our system is more of an early warning system. It doesn't prevent the ransomware from starting. It prevents the ransomware from completing its task. Oh. So you lose a couple of your files, right? It, but uh, Or a couple of documents or whatever, but rather than everything on your hard drive. So it actually hmm. detects the pattern of what the ransomware is doing and stops it before it can finish. So is this something that's like looking at the kernel's file IO notify system, subsystem and being like, okay, I'm seeing a bunch of files in a certain pattern getting accessed. So it's like antivirus or, or, or in a sense? A of, yeah. So it's like the files are being, a new file with almost the same name is being created, uh, written. It's the same size because, you know, when you encrypt something, or it's, it's the same size rounded up to the nearest block size. Um, and then the original file is being deleted. I'm seeing this happen in a straight line across this directory. It's like that definitely seems like ransomware. Sure, let's, sure. Let's this is real. This is this is a really great idea, and um, and to be honest with you, seems a little obvious. But mm-hmm. here we are. Uh, <laughs> it says relieves you of the burden of having to pay the ransom. Uh, and this is uh, Nolan Skiff and uh, the other guy's name is later in the document here, uh, who are. Um, doctoral students and a professor uh, as part of the University of Florida's Institute of Cybersecurity Research. Patrick Tranner, I think is his name. I think so. Um, They say attacks most often show up in the form of an email that appears to be from someone familiar. The recipient clicks on a link in the email and unknowingly unleashes malware that encrypts his or her data. The next thing to appear is a message demanding the ransom, typically anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars. They say it's incredibly easy to monetize this bad use of software. Uh, yeah, Patrick Trainer, who's the associate professor at the US, uh, University of Florida's Department of Computer and Information Security and uh, Engineering, and he's the member of the Florida Institute of Cybersecurity Research. There we go. And they're working on this, and they've called it uh, CryptoDrop. CryptoDrop. Uh, so see, we ran our detector against several hundred ransomware samples that were live, uh, and in these cases, it detected 100% of these malware samples and did so after only a median of 10 files were encrypted. Hmm. So, you know, after about 10 or so files, uh, it usually detected uh, that it was malware and shut it down. Uh, losing, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 files instead of thousands is kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, it, people would take that away any day. Yeah, they say about one-tenth of one percent of the files were lost. Uh, but the advantage is that it's flexible. You don't have to wait for an antivirus update. Uh, if you have a new version of a ransomware that no one's ever seen before, their system can still detect it. Uh, so they have a short, like, one-minute video of them talking about it, although they're mostly just saying what I just said. Yeah, and what ransomware is. <laughs> yep, and it says, uh, it seems like it would be uh, very uh, trivial to detect the pattern that ransomware uses, you know, uh, I've not actually looked at that much ransomware, but I assume it's something like create a new file that's called like, you know, file that originally extension.locked or something, I think was the example, the one we talked about recently. And then you basically are copying the data out of the original file and writing it to the new file, but encrypted first, and then you delete the original file and you just keep doing this for each file and you kind of just walk through the directories doing one file at a time or whatever. Uh, and then removing the originals and that's it. Uh, so... It's possible that newer ransomware could use different patterns, like rename the file or uh, overwrite the file in place or something that would be harder to detect. Um, Or an interesting one would be encrypting the files in random order. So instead of walking through the directory and doing one file at a time or whatever, you would kind of walk through the directory and get this big list of all the files you want to encrypt, then sort it randomly and just start you know, do a file over here and then a file over here and different, and kind of make it harder to see the pattern that you're walking through and encrypting individual hmm. files. Hmm. 
So I, I'm not. It's not clear exactly how um, how their system detects uh, the ransomware at the moment. Uh, although they're right. looking for partners to uh, make a commercial version of this, because I guess in so. theory it would be possible <laughs> you could just do you could have really really slow ransomware that just does a couple of files a day <laughs> and then and or then spawns a bunch of separate programs so that when the you know if if the detection thing is you know it's it's encrypted ten files then I'll just spawn different instances of it and only encrypt five files at a time. You know what? You know what does resonate with me though is um, we've heard a couple of stories of hospitals having like their entire NAS encrypted mm-hmm. and and you know held it's ransom. Like, how they not detect that f- sooner? <laughs> At the file server level, this seems like it would be very useful because you know that means your different end users might be getting different kinds of ransomware. They, they might different kinds for different folks. But as long as your file server is sort of watching for that pattern of behavior. Uh, that would yeah. be a pretty big step to protect your data in case of a big exactly. ransomware infection. Like, so uh, you you see this pattern against your file server. You identify the endpoint that's yeah. doing it. Yeah. You can block that endpoint from accessing the file server and send an alert. Say, hey, somebody needs to go check out the machine with this IP address, which you know, uh, in a big infrastructure like a hospital, it's like, oh, that's this machine on this person's desk or this machine at that kiosk, uh, and then you can go there and clean it up. Uh, and it only hit five, ten files that you can easily restore from backup instead of the entire NAS. And of course, if you're using something like ZFS and you have the snapshots, there, uh, there's a built-in detection mechanism in that it will take up all the space because you'll end up with the mm. original copy and the encrypted copy mm. of every file. Because mm-hmm. when they're deleting the originals, you're not actually letting them get deleted because of the snapshot. Uh, and so on top of detecting that, you also eventually run out of space. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit uh, of a bummer. But, yeah. But the, the recovery there is really nice because you like you can like clone the original so that you have it so that any files that maybe were updated and not overwritten or not been encrypted yet can be restored over top of when you roll back to it or whatever. But hmm. uh, so I guess the other thing that it sort of struck me about it, and I kind of I kind of joked about it, was it seems a little bit of, of an obvious idea too. Like it could be it could be such a I mean all props to the University of Florida for even for, for coming up with it. But if you're really just doing file system access analysis, eventually that could even be incorporated at the OS level. And if nothing else, it probably means there could be a lot of different implementations of this type of solution. It's not like there's, there's not. It's not like they're using some sort of cloud-connected, uh, crowd-sourced database of millions of nodes reporting in with an infrastructure that costs them a million dollars a month to run. They're just simply right. watching just file like- system actions. Exactly, you know, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure you know Mark Rusinovich has a tool that let you watch these uh, yeah, on Windows. Yeah, Turtles guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So there's probably assistant turtle tools for Windows that would just print <laughs> off a list of everything that's happening. There is, yeah. And then you're just looking for the pattern there, huh. uh, and so that hopefully means that the way they implement uh, they had some diagrams. I didn't get to look at them though about how they implemented it. But hopefully it's not in the form of a rootkit kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. But let's see. I'm looking at them. Looking at it right now. And it looks like the analysis engine runs at the file system level, sitting above the disk. So I'm, I'm thinking right. it's well, it could be kernel. They don't really say. Well, it looks like it hooks into the kernel and, and gets the events. Yeah. But uh, it seems like you know, just about it's, the main thing we've learned from virus scanners is you don't want the thing that's doing the scanning to be too privileged. That's true, but at the same time, so if you're using the kernel's standard interface, which basically every desktop, every OS has, just find out what files have recently changed, then. Aren't you also susceptible to anything that convinces the kernel that it doesn't exist? 
So if the Probably. kernel doesn't know about it, which is the exact intent of some of this malware, it may not be presented to the application for scanning. So it's some. So they have to. They that could be where the real magic. The real magic happens, right? I, I don't know. Maybe that's the secret sauce to it. Yep. Hmm. Something to watch out for. And I bet we'll yep. see. I'll bet we'll hear more about this or something quite a bit like it. Uh, in the meantime, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure every virus scanner vendor is trying to come up with something like this. Yeah, now. exactly. Right. Exactly. Because be here. Because really, it should be that should be something antivirus. I mean, to make antivirus great again, <laughs> it's, make it useful again. That should be something it does. Yeah, which is making me randomly think about. There's actually a virus scanner feature built into ZFS. It was never implemented on the FreeBSD <laughs> side, but okay. Oracle, uh, when Sun designed it, they have it. And so it was designed for you to basically have like Clam AV run on every file as it's made and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, I wonder if it could actually be hooked up to, to something that would be able to detect things like this. That'd be pretty course, slick. None, none of it's even hooked up on FreeBSD because it was just Maybe something one that day. was glossed over when it was ported because I've never heard anybody talk about using it on a Lumos either. A new Alan Jude project is born. Oh, man, that's why when you're busy like Alan, you got to rely on a great company like IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where Alan goes to get his hardware to talk to the experts. And they have experts in every single division at the software level, at the hardware level, in the community, at the sales level, engineering. And the people that run the company are great, too. They want to make a long-term sustainable company that made it through the dot-com boom and is here to provide you solutions for your open source workflow. Find them at ixsystems.com slash techsnap and go check them out. Now, I was on vacay, that's what I'm calling it, uh, during Texas Linux Fest, but uh, no worries because ixsystems is hooking me up with a recap. So this is actually perfect because I really haven't heard much about it. So it looks like they were there at the FreeBSD Foundation booth with that FreeBSD Foundation logo we were talking about in the pre-show. Yep. It's pretty nice. This is cool. I love it when they do this. This is great. They have all kinds of great content they put up on the blog. But uh, this is one that uh, is that Drew up there giving a giving a talk. There? Yep. Yep. Yeah, she has that that doc uh, like, like an Egyptian. Like an Egyptian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Speaking of documentation, when you go to ixsystems.com/techsnap, they also have a, a handy guide you can download to uh, help move things along. How are all things ix and uh, scale engine, Alan? Very good, actually. I was uh, talking to uh, some of the IX ZFS experts this morning about an interesting issue I was seeing on a server in Germany. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we've never seen that before either, but that looks exactly like a software bug. Hmm. So and there's some investigation going on there, but luckily cool. it didn't actually impact anything or hurt anything. So Very cool. But, you know, it's just interesting that when I go to talk to my ZFS expert friends, it turns out a lot of them work at IX. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's really what IX is smart about, is they, they really are very clever there. Check them out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And thanks to you guys for visiting that page to let them know you heard about it here and then checking them out for your next project. After years and years and years and years in the business, uh, I, I wish I knew about IX systems sooner. I'm glad that now that I run my own business, I know about them. But I, if I was still in the client business, I would be recommending IX to all of my clients. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Uh, those of us that are Silicon Valley fans probably did a double take. Uh, I don't know if you saw this headline for the next story you're about to read, but this was Slashdot's headline. Dropbox open sources a new lossless middle out image compression algorithm, which yes. I, I think Slashdot got trolled on the whole middle out thing. Nope, but nope. Uh, really? We, we covered this originally when they when Dropbox announced okay, it. Okay, I, uh, okay. Because apparently, like, Dropbox, uh, there was some, like, um, the Silicon Valley writers had 
somebody actually come up with this idea yeah, yeah. for the compression algorithm. And when people at Dropbox heard, saw the episode, they decided to try to build it. Uh, and That's they amazing. Announced it a while ago, but they uh, this week they've open sourced what they've built. Oh, and I have it, it there. And in their official post on the blog, they have the references to the, to okay. the episode. Okay. I think I'll link to a part of the video. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, so it's uh, a little obscene when they come up with the algorithm in the show. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, they've open sourced what they uh, built here. It's called Lepton. Uh, Not Lepton. Lepton. It's, a, it's like a... Not an electron, but oh, a subatomic oh, particle. I, okay, clever. It's okay. actually a real scientific thing. Yeah, it I get it. Small. Um, it, it. The original Greek word means like small or fine or. or yeah. Little. Okay. Um, but anyway, so with this new lepton image compression algorithm, they save uh, up to twenty-two percent by losslessly compressing a JPEG. So it allows you to make a JPEG smaller without actually losing any quality. Right? JPEGs can be made smaller by giving up quality, uh, but this allows you to take a JPEG that. Maybe it's already compressed somewhat by you know it's your phone or your camera, um, and it allows Dropbox to compress it before storing it on disk and make it twenty two percent smaller without having. Uh, but in a way that when they uncompress it, they give you back the original file without any changes. Hmm. So compression without any loss. Uh, That's so yeah, that is great. Mm-hmm. So it uh, achieves a twenty two percent savings on uh, JPEG images by predicting coefficients in JPEG blocks and feeding those predictions as context into the uh, arithmetic coder, which is actually the one from VP8, Google's uh, video compression codec. Uh, Leptron preserves the original file bit for bit perfectly, but it compresses JPEG files at a rate of 5 megabytes per second and can decode them back to the original uh, at a rate of 15 megabytes per second. Securely and deterministically. So if you compress the same file two different times, you get the same result. Uh, and uh, it only takes about 24 megabytes of memory to do it. Okay. Huh. Which if you know anything about VP8 and WebM, that's yes. actually a good yes. thing there. So that speed does seem kind of slow. You know, only compressing at 5 megabytes a second. It's like I'm used to like ZFS compression where you're doing like 5 gigabytes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know. Uh, Truly lossless is, is yeah. This is lossless in compression on an already compressed file, so it's gains you were not going to get any other way. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That really uh, is the underscore of it right there. Yeah. So it's not clear if the encoding uh, is already multi-threaded or could be, so that you could uh, compress one file more quickly. But you know, especially in Dropbox's case, they're dealing with billions and billions of files, so they're fine to run one on each core and do many concurrently or whatever. Um. But, you know, it, it seems kind of slow, but, you know, you're getting compression. You can't get any other way. So what are you going to say? You just not do it? But, and depending yeah. on your work case, that might be totally worth it. I mean, you can see how yeah. Dropbox, obviously how Dropbox could use this. Yeah. Um, one of the use cases I talk about it for it a little later, that, that 15 megabytes per second, and that's on like a an E5 at like 2.6 gigahertz, uh, it, it does raise some questions about the client side of it. Hmm. But they say, yeah, so uh, we use Lepton to encode 16 billion images saved to Dropbox, and we're rapidly recoding all the older images. Uh, Lepton has already saved Dropbox multiple petabytes of space. Petabytes? Yeah. So then uh, in the article, if you look, um, there's an animated GIF uh, that you're looking at right there. Mm-hmm. It's currently in the middle of the transition. But it's actually this part is just describing how JPEG files work normally. So you see that little grid above there, mm-hmm. and that shows the 64 different uh, coefficient things. Uh, 
And in this animation, basically you start out with almost a blank slate. And then as it applies all those different coefficients with their values, that can uh, slowly make the letter A clearer and clearer and clearer until it's done. And when you start at the beginning, it basically starts out as a blob. And by applying these different uh, transforms to it, eventually you get a clear image. Hmm. Uh, but it allows, it means every block in the JPEG is made up of just some varying value of each of these 64 different transformation operations. And that's what makes JPEGs able to, to store high-res images. You know, normally, it, it, uncompressed as a bitmap, uh, most JPEGs that are like a megabyte would be like hundreds of megabytes. Hmm. So you're getting uh, yeah. very good stuff. Yeah. So um, what Lepton does is find shortcuts in the way we store that information. Uh, so to say, so the, the starting one is called the DC coefficient, uh, which is how bright each section of a JPEG is. Okay. Uh, and that takes up a lot of room, usually about 8% of the entire JPEG file on a typical iPhone photograph. Uh, so it's important to compress that well. Most image formats put the DC coefficient at the very beginning before any of the AC coefficients, which are the transforms you do to it after to make it look clearer. So Leptron gets uh, a compression advantage by coding the DC as the very last value in each block. Since the DCs are serialized last, there's a wealth of information from the AC coefficients earlier in the file available hmm. to predict what the DC coefficient will be. Uh, because based on how much stuff there is in, in each block, you know how bright it's going to be. Okay. Uh, by defining a good and uh, reproducible prediction, we can subtract the actual DC coefficient from the predicted DC coefficient and only encode the difference. Uh, then in the future, we can use the prediction along with the saved difference uh, to get back the original DC coefficient. In almost all cases, this technique results in a significantly reduced number of symbols hmm. uh, to feed into the arithmetic coder for compression. And so the fewer symbols you have, the more repeats you have. Uh, because you're, everything's made up of the symbols, and if you have less of them, it means the file of the same size is going to have more repeated symbols, and you can compress them better. You know, I'm with Nemo in the chat room. I, I would love for this to be something that could be somehow applied to video. And and if you could, well, if if you could do as, imagine if each frame was limited to five megabytes a second. Yeah, yeah, I can see. Um, but I think it's it's based uh, partly on WebM, and uh, yeah, it's, I imagine it. If it could be applied to video, it would be really slow. Super, super slow. Super now, slow. You know, if, it, if a GPU could do this and could do, you know, like a CUDA, like 4,000 CUDA cores working at once, then maybe it would be possible. But, you know, for for systems like, you know, yourself, like Scale Engine, and for JB, for all the content we store here at rest on disk that we don't need to necessarily mm-hmm. get to even at super fast speeds, um... Boy, that would be huge for us if we could get if we could stretch our storage space out a little bit by using something like this. Even if it well, meant doing like you know a, a serious, serious like heavy encode job or something in a queue for long term well, storage. The be great. random thing I was thinking about is so ZFS has built in transparent compression. Uh-huh. And it already has this early abort feature oh. where it doesn't bother to compress a file if it doesn't compress well. Mm, oh, sure. What if you could hook it up so? The early abort is, is this file a JPEG or not? Right? And if it is a JPEG, then you run it through Lepton. And if it's not, then you don't. Right. Hmm. And then you get really slow but space-efficient JPEG storage. Hmm. 
And when you access a file, it automatically gets decoded and you get back the original JPEG. Right. Yeah. And so you don't even think about it. You just put the JPEGs in this data set in ZFS and you have efficient JPEG storage. Uh, sadly, I don't have that many JPEGs to have enough of a use case to build. Yeah, this. I don't have a whole. I mean, I guess we have uh, we have some some JB assets that are in JPEG and stuff, but a lot right, of stuff is in it, like that's just the output. A lot of stuff's in the original. Yeah. So, well, oh, interesting yeah. though. And so good guy say, Dropbox uh, for open sourcing it too. Yeah. So they say uh, Lepton can decompress significantly faster than line speed for typical consumer and business connections. So that means that uh, on Dropbox's side, they can decompress the image and give you back the original quick enough that it doesn't slow down your download of it. Oh man, Netflix, uh, right? They, could, they, they would can love that. They that 15 megabytes a second, and most people aren't downloading JPEGs that fast from Dropbox. Netflix. Uh, Lepton Netflix. is a fully streamable format, meaning the decompression can uh, be applied to any file as that file is being transferred over the network. Nice. So it means that um, Dropbox can decompress the file and turn it back into the original JPEG as you're trying to load the file. Like as they're sending it to you, and so they don't have to keep both versions of the file around or whatever. Hmm. And it means that they can do it. Uh, they don't have to decompress the whole file before they can start sending it to you. It can just stream out. Do you suppose that means they can avoid writing parts of it to disk too? Uh, which yeah. So basically, they can keep on disk. It can always be compressed. And then they can do the actual work in memory and just yeah, send you what they compress it and send it. To, and they don't even have to store it in memory. They can just uh, decompress it and write the decompressed bits to the socket to you, and then. Uh, throw them away when they're done. Uh, so hence, uh, streaming overlaps the computational work of the decompression of the file uh, with the file transfer itself, hiding any latency from the user. Uh, basically, because your internet connection isn't going to be downloading 15 megabytes a second from Dropbox, the fact is that that's the max decompression speed isn't really a problem for them. Hmm. Uh, interestingly, cool. because it can be streamed like that, that means that, say, on a mobile device, you might be able to... Uh, set up some kind of proxy thing so that uh, every time you try to load a JPEG, it actually goes through this proxy and some big machine somewhere uh, leptons the file, sends it to your phone, and then you unlepton it and get the JPEG back and feed hmm. it into your browser. Yeah. The downside is we saw that the max decompression speed on a dual socket Xeon with like 24 or 32 cores, uh, although it's only using one of those, is 15 megabytes a second. Hmm. Uh, it seems like that would be very expensive on your phone and might use up a lot of CPU and battery power to get the original JPEG back. Yeah. I, um, I, I keep... Clear. I love that they've done this, but my mind keeps going to video and I can't help it. You know, I think of, I think of Netflix and I think of how Netflix could store things on disk. Uh, it just seems like we just need a lot more horsepower. But in the meantime, photo services and websites that have to store photos, this, it's open source. It's something they could just take a look at. It's pretty cool. Especially when storage is a hot commodity. Uh, all right, Mr. Judy, any other thoughts on the uh, Lepton story? Uh, no. Uh, it's just interesting and uh, be fun to see what people do with that. And as a, as a Silicon Valley fan, I love the references. That's super, super legit. That's, uh, the, that's a great show, too, if you get a chance to catch yeah. it. Digital Ocean, sponsor right here on the TechSnap program. Boy, look at that new slick logo. That's not all that's new over at DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about that here in a second. But if you're not familiar with them, they're a simple cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own rig on their super fast and powerful infrastructure. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That's going to get you 20 gigabytes of SSD, one CPU, a terabyte of transfer, and they got data centers all over the world. But if that 20 gig SSD doesn't do it for you, my friends, and remember to use the promo code SNAPOcean, one word, DigitalOcean has announced their block storage. 
You can scale storage up independently of your droplet for up to 16 terabytes for 10 cents per gig per month. They have a whole article posted up on their site talking all about it, giving you the full introduction over there. And they also, like all things, have a tutorial with some good documentation on how to actually use it, what it is, where it's currently supported, which I'm sure will be uh, changing, so it's probably worth keeping an eye on this article. When you should use block storage, creating and attaching volumes. I've been playing a little bit with the beta, and I'm super excited to see this. So DigitalOcean is a great platform for you to spin up a system. They start at $5 a month and work their way up. Really, though, $5 a month is sort of what it works out to at an hourly level. It's actually hourly pricing. And the reason why I mention that is because SnapOcean will give you a $10 credit. You could actually try a very nice system on their infrastructure where they have great connections. They have SSDs for their entire infrastructure. And you could pick a data center close to you, and you could have a very powerful system. They have free BSD as an option. They have lots of Linux distributions, including CoreOS, which has some interesting characteristics, and, of course, CentOS, Debian, and Ubuntu and Fedora. I think it's something that uniquely appeals to our audience. And I was just looking today as I was uh, going through for the TechSnap feedback, um, emails in general across all of the shows, one of the things I get in the most common for all of our sponsors is, wow, I can't believe how great and awesome DigitalOcean actually is. Here's the cool thing I thought of doing. which it di And here's the other thing that I think people have to acknowledge is you sometimes, even though I've, I've mentioned this to you, until you actually have a system that's fast and powerful, that's available all the time, that's up on their machines with really nice dashboard to manage it all, and once you're in that position, the ideas and things that you can start do it starts to feel enabling, and it's very mm -hmm. cool. It's a very cool experience. And I, for Snap, for TechSnap audience members, I think it's something you should all try at least once. Use the promo code SnapOcean. Try them out. That's how we get credit, and that's how you support the show. Just go over to DigitalOcean.com. You can now also play around with the new block storage, which is pretty cool. Just use that promo code SnapOcean. DigitalOcean.com. That's cool. I'm glad they got the block storage rolled out. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that, too. I have some interesting ideas going on there. So Windows and printers. Yes. Always a thing. Everybody's favorite thing is printers, <laughs> Always right? a thing. So what's going on? We have something. It doesn't this... matter how much of an expert you are at computers, printers are evil. Is this as bad as I think it is? What's going on here? Yeah. So this is, um, uh, according to Microsoft, a remote code execution vulnerability exists when the Windows print spooler service does not properly validate print drivers while installing a printer from servers. An attacker who successfully exploits this vulnerability could use it to arbitrarily, uh, arbitrarily execute code and take control of an affected system. An attacker could then install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user privileges. Users whose accounts are configured to have fewer rights on the system could be less impacted than users who operate as administrative rights users. Uh, so the researchers say, most organizations try to apply the principle of least privilege to the devices in their network. Mm -hmm. This works pr uh, pretty well for things like laptops and desktops, since the hardware they use don't change very often. However, printers are a bit different. Uh, while they still need drivers, printers need to support virtually any user that wants to connect to them. As end users move throughout a building, they naturally want to use the printer closest to them. Mobile users expect to be able to easily connect and use a printer uh, when they come into the office. In addition, most organizations don't standardize on a single printer and will have multiple models and manufacturers within the same network. Mm -hmm. So instead of having the system administrator push all possible print drivers to all workstations on the network, and you know that doesn't even help with mobile devices, the solution from Microsoft was to develop a way to deliver 
the driver to a user device right before the printer is used. And this is where Microsoft point and print showed up. Uh, this approach stores a shared driver on the printer or the print server, and only the user of that printer, uh, and then the user of that printer receives the driver that they need when they try to print. So instead of having to have print drivers installed in your system, the print server or the printer itself, which usually can have a print server built into it, has the driver and will give it to you when you want to use the printer. Right. So this solved the printer driver problem for Windows quite nicely, except for the security problem. Yes, of course. Of course. And, you know, at first glance, this is a practical and simple solution to driver deployment. The user gets access to the printer driver they need without requiring an administrator, a nice win-win. However, by default in corporate networks, network admins allow printers to deliver the necessary drivers to workstations connected to the network. These drivers are silently installed without any user interaction and run under the system user with all available privileges. Uh, meanwhile, these researchers manage to dissect the firmware update for an existing printer and modify it to uh, contain their own driver instead of the printer driver and cause it to infect Windows clients that load this driver with malware. Uh, so this malware then allows them to access the target Windows client as a system user and run whatever commands they want. <laughs> I think if you scroll down, the, it, uh, in the, maybe you have the, need the second link to see it. Uh, but they have um, you know, them getting a shell on the uh, Windows machine with access to everything. Uh, and so they talk about some of the different ways that they uh, could exploit this. <laughs> it's from a GNOME desktop, too. It's adorable. <laughs> uh, so they could do watering hole attacks, which is, you know, they could backdoor an existing printer or print server to give out a virus. Um, if the server, the print server is Microsoft, then they just drop the virus driver into, you know, Windows System 32 spool drivers or whatever. Um, you could also do it from a cup server on Linux or BSD. Uh, check for the share print. Uh, shared driver uh, print dollar sign in the configuration of your Samba or Cup server yeah. and uh, be able to drop the virus in there. Uh, multiple vendors support uh, point and print on the printer the, itself, hmm. so you could hijack it there. You could reflash a printer with a backdoor driver or you could create a freak print server and broadcast it for auto-discovery so it just shows up in the list of printers on everybody's computer and when they double-click on it or try to print to it, it installs the virus. Ah, oh, nice and easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all the ways you could uh, infect people using this. <laughs> Although if you're a if you're a user or a bad guy on the network, you could also use this pr privilege escalation. So you, as a restricted user on this machine that you just sat down at or that you've remotely taken control of, don't have any administrator privileges. Hmm. But if you print to this fake print server you've set up, it runs your driver as system giving you access by the shell or whatever to run any command you want on that machine as system. So you could actually make yourself administrator by printing to a printer. Oh, boy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Plus, you could do man-in-the-middle attacks. That's uh, system-level access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could also do man-in-the-middle attacks between people when they're trying to talk to a real printer and intercept it and inject the virus there. Uh, to go more global, you could also use IPP or Internet uh, Printing or WebPNP uh, which is the uh, version of this uh, point-and-print that's used uh, from cell phones and tablets and so on. So then you could send uh, users an email with a link or something, and they click it, and it connects to the printer, and boom, they're infected. Hmm. Uh, 
So they have more details about how you would actually infect somebody remotely in the blog post, and they go into quite a bit of interesting detail there. You know, the chat room says, it kind of makes a good point. I mean, I think uh, X-Metal is trolling, but um, people sometimes ask, uh, what inherently makes Unix or Linux more secure than Windows? And sometimes it's a hard answer, but this kind of stuff... Sometimes it's literally the answer is it makes things harder to do. And then, like, remember two weeks ago when we talked about the group policy debacle? And Okay, so you missed it last week. But what we covered last week was we found out what the vulnerability was that caused the Oh, really? Update. Yeah, I haven't had a chance that to see that yet. Yeah, so that uh, two weeks ago when we talked about the security update that broke group policy, mm -hmm. last week we got to cover the story of the vulnerability that made Microsoft release that patch. Okay. It was epic. I'll have to watch the episode. I will. I, I intend to. Uh, I so w this that is that is one. There's one of these things where uh, you can see why the system was designed. What its intention was. It's designed to make adding printers over over a network simple and right, straightforward. But in general, you know, the the random printer at the end of the hall isn't in the trust domain, but you're trusting that it's going to give you the real driver and not an infected one. And, you know, I have used this system extensively in Windows networks before. Uh, I, I, I literally depended on it to have, I used group policy to install printers at the time of login. And without this without this system there, uh, it was... You would have had to use yeah. something to force the driver to be installed on every machine. Now, what I... Need every driver for every printer you've ever had, basically. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. On terminal server, you, the way you have it locked down, Windows users do not have the privilege to install a driver. So you had to pre-install any driver on that system they might ever potentially want to use so it would be available for them. So there were workarounds. but Yeah, so that's why Microsoft has this little caveat in their note saying, users whose accounts are configured to have fewer user rights on the system could be less impacted than users who operate as administrators. Exactly. Yeah, but then, but, of course, they don't uh, get automatic printer installation. Yeah, but you know, if printer automatic printer installation didn't work for anybody except administrators, then this feature wouldn't work either. So. <laughs> That's yeah. Ah. So you can see from Microsoft's perspective how it's hard to trade off how much privilege a non-user or non-administrator should have versus making Windows just work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were supposed to be the small business OS, right? So. Uh, but Microsoft's released a fix for this vulnerability as part of the July Patch Tuesday. Yeah, I wonder how much that means that uh, the the point and print won't work anymore. Is this page helpful? I'm going to say yes, yes. Uh, good to have this one fixed. There we go. Submit. Uh, Hope that's useful, Microsoft. One though is is you know. Uh, Microsoft has not identified any mitigating factors to this vulnerability or any. <laughs> That's nice corporate speak for you guys. Patch or you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, that That's was. What, they don't really talk about what they did to fix it. I tell you what, that makes me really want to watch last week's episode, too. So I'll go check that out. In the meantime, I also have a new BSD Now to catch up on. I better get cracking because BSD Now episode 150. Sprinkle a little BSD into your life <laughs> is out. <laughs> Why yes, not just a little BSD in your me. life or something? That's uh, like <laughs> it's uh, long. That's what Chris. That's what Chris wrote, and uh, <laughs> Rikai is like, "You guys are killing me." <laughs> well, I think last week's was even longer, and he had to like change the font size to try to make it fit. <laughs> <laughs> you guys go watch these limited edition episodes of BSD now before Rikai's beard uh, becomes inflamed with rage. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, in this one, it's uh, 
automating your garden sprinkler system using FreeBSD on a BeagleBone Black. Oh my gosh, that's great. People that don't know, it's, it's a little Raspberry Pi-like device. That is great. Huh. That's nice. Also, uh, some talk about D-Trace books and whatnot, and yep. uh, some OpenBSD news, and some Google Summer of Code reports. Yeah, so, uh, you know, even though Chris wasn't here this week, uh, we did a full episode last week, uh, which was a lot of work, so hopefully people appreciate it. <laughs> Very cool. BSD Now, episode 150. You can go grab that and uh, get the HD version. We're about the halfway point in the show here, so uh, by the time that finishes, you'll be ready to watch all more Alan Jude in high resolutions. With the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB site. Or you can also start threads in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And please do send them in. We need new emails for next week, so go over there and hit that contact form. Our first one this week comes in from Mr. R. And Mr. R says, uh, thanks for helping with securing my server. I'm curious. I'm starting another round of new SSH keys and wondering how much more secure is a passphrase-enabled 4096 key than a non-passphrase 4096 key. I know that obviously it is more secure, but how much? Do you happen to have any stats? Uh, I think he's just sort of helping for hoping for a little guidance here. I think on. he's slightly uh, confused about how that works, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll cover in just a he's, second. Yeah, he says if uh, he basically is worried about his keys getting stolen. I think is what the core uh, core concern is. Yeah. So yeah, the, the um, when you have a password passphrase on your SSH key. It doesn't actually change your SSH key. It just means that on your hard drive, the key is encrypted, and without and you need the password to decrypt it to get the forty ninety six bit key. Um, and so it doesn't make it any more secure as far as its use over the internet. What it saves you from is it means I can't sit down at your computer and SSH into stuff and never be prompted for your password and have access to all your stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the passphrase on your SSH key is there to prevent someone with physical access to your machine uh, from having the ability to use your key and pretend to be you, right? If your key is proving that you are you, you want to make sure that only you can do that, not just anybody who has access to the files on your drive. And we've talked a lot about picking good passphrases and stuff, so there's some good content to go through to, you know. But yeah, so the the only thing that uh, password-protected SSH key saves you from is your computer getting compromised or stolen as someone having access to your SSH key and being able to SSH into any of your servers. You know, uh, there's pretty, and you know, SSH makes this kind of easy because there's a little file in your S- on your SSH directory called known hosts, which is every machine you've ever logged into bef- to yeah. before. So it, it keeps the, so you can tell if it if the private key on the other side is still the same, so that you can detect man in the middle attack. But it means that if I get access to your home directory and have your SSH key and your known host file, I now have a list of every machine you've ever tried to log into before, True. which gives me a pretty good chance, uh, a pretty good list of places to try to log in as you with this SSH key I've just stolen and having a good chance that it'll work. Very true. Okay. That's a... I, I think you uh, answered that perfectly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mr. R, good luck. And if you, have, uh, if, you have, if you want to clarify the question, you're always welcome to do that. Um, you can either leave a comment on 275 in the subreddit, or you can send us a brand new email, and we'll try to read it next week. Now, Alan, <clears throat> someone writes, I'm finding it that my road, my road Warrior users want to expose their FreeNAS systems on their laptops and phones, but naturally that sounds like a risky proposition. 
Now, FreeNAS includes OpenVPN, and there are various tutorials about setting it up in a FreeNAS jail, but a dedicated piece of hardware would presumably have advantages, advantages, such as a Mac, Windows, and iOS. Uh, with also potentially Android compatibility without much tinkering, plus the warm fuzzies of having a real VPN, and also kind of nice to have a dedicated device. Under $300 US would be the ideal, and of course if it was on Amazon, maybe that'd be better. He did a little searching himself, he came across the TP-Links, he came across a couple of Cisco's, a Netgear uh, security appliance, and also a Netgear ProSafe. But some of these have single five-star reviews, and that seems a little suspicious. Have you used any units? Can you recommend them? And also, Assuming I have one of those Soho cable internet connections with a Wi-Fi router, where would this use in, where would this unit reside on the land, and where would it be in its relation to the FreeNAS system? Keep up the good work, someone. <laughs> yes, well, this is from Michael Dexter, who apparently <laughs> is someone. Just someone I haven't I exposed his identity a couple of times on <laughs> uh, BSD now, maybe because what we were talking about. Wasn't I like the idea though of a mystery contributor who has great questions, like, hmm, who is someone? <laughs> Yes, or, or it's a Game of Thrones reference. <laughs> oh, okay. A girl has no name or whatever it was. You know? mm-hmm. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so there's a couple options here. So, obviously, yes, so FreeNAS has built-in OpenVPN, but OpenVPN means you have to install a client, right, uh, on Mac, Windows, iOS, Android, etc. Whereas if you want some of the other VPN t- styles, you don't need that. Now, you can set up uh, like an L2TP IPsec VPN on FreeBSD, which we'll be able to use to built-in client on Mac and Windows. And imagine iOS has a built-in VPN client, right, in Android? No idea, though. I, I, I know that there's probably like, I think, on iOS. I don't know about Android. I don't know if I've ever tried it. There's yeah. so many solutions yeah. there that it's not yes. really. And uh, I know Android does have an open VPN client. But again, that's something you'd have to install. Yeah. And they kind of would yeah. love to have something that just worked anywhere uh, to access the stuff. Hmm. Um, PFSense is a great answer to that, usually. Um, and it's something you probably want to have anyway instead of your typical home Wi-Fi router. Um, and you think and it's it better to do it at the... So if their intention is to access the FreeNAS server, still better to do it at the firewall level, you think? Well, yes, because you need... Uh, for the VPN to work, you need to have the firewall cooperate. Otherwise, you won't be able to connect to the VPN. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Especially some of the other types other than OpenSSH. Uh, for VPN types other than OpenVPN, you usually need to pass like GRE routing or something. It's a bit more complicated the, than just Yeah, a, that's port. true. And that does make it a pain in the butt. Because where, where I was going with it is if he could host the VPN daemon on the FreeNAS box, that saves him from having to replace the, the Edge right. box. But you're right. Because um, if you're using FreeNAS 9.10, it now has support for Beehive. So you could run a PFSS instance as a VM on your FreeNAS, which we've talked about other people asking about that before. Uh, and, you know, that does have some uh, advantages, um, not requiring separate hardware. But, you know, having if you want to have, he specifically wanted a separate device, so that could be another machine running PFSense. Uh, or I suppose any of these. I don't, I've never used any of these specifically. Um, my biggest concern with a, under $300 hardware VPN is that it's not going to be able to support very many clients that go very fast. But, you know, if you have your typical home internet connection and you're just trying to access it from your laptop, or they're even on mobile, that's probably fine. Yeah. My concern with a $300 hardware device would be it might not, be get, not, might not get too many years of updates. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a, a concern. Uh, maybe less so with a Cisco. I don't know for sure there. Um, and the other problem is, yes, how do you position that with your Wi-Fi router. And it's like, 
you know, that's another problem where if you do something like a PFSense uh, or a MicroTik, then it's replacing the Wi-Fi router and therefore it's it's providing that edge. Because, yeah, the VPN is going to have to be behind the router, especially if you have built-in like modem router like most people do now. Uh, and so then you have to port forward and set up the VPN pass-through or whatever to that device and it gets pretty complicated. Uh, so that's where a router VPN put together has some advantages. And I imagine some of those Cisco's might do that rather than being a VPN-only device. I'm not sure, though. Um, and it gets all kinds of complicated. Hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about uh, a VPN recently, and I talked about this in Linux Unplugged because I discovered on my home connection, my ISP is proxying my HTTP and HTTPS traffic. And the HTTP and HTTPS server is very slow. So it, it's in, it, it's adding a lot of page load time that doesn't need to exist. And so I want to come up with a really lightweight VPN solution to basically just tunnel around that because they're not they're not they're not they're only grabbing uh, 80 and 443 and that's the and they're pretty much not oh and FTP but that's it and they're not touching anything else and so I've I've been thinking more about more and more about setting up a VPN just to browse the web at home. Mm-hmm. Well, cause, uh, the one I've been looking at is we have IPMI on a bunch of these servers and we'd like it to only be accessible over a VPN, but I need it to be reliable and need to be able to... So I don't have any... I'm not, I can't install an extra device because that costs more rack space and power and, and you know, most a bunch of these places, that, that's just not an option. Um, and so it has to be something that can run on the existing machines and not interfere with them. And it needs to be redundant enough so that if the machine that runs the VPN goes down, I can still access the VPN to get to the IPMI to fix that machine. <laughs> so, I, so it's a couple of these remote data centers, and I want some kind of VPN solution so that I can access the IPMI from our office without issues. But also, uh, the switches and stuff have um, you know, uh, SNMP monitoring and stuff. We want our monitoring systems to be able to reach those to give us uh, graphs and stats on the, the ports and alerting when we're using up too much bandwidth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out some way where I have uh, four separate sites. It's like uh, Hamilton, Toronto, Portland, and Fremont. Uh, and they all need to have some kind of like mesh VPN between them. That might be uh, Tink. So they all <laughs> that might, have you yeah. looked at Tink? T-I-N-C? No. Yeah, that's actually really popular in the JB audience right now, and it's a it's a it's an open source peer to peer VPN, uh, tink vpnorg Right, but I don't really want something peer to peer, and I want something that's private to me. I don't well, want, yeah, no, it's know. it's private to you. It's okay. a, it's a private. It's worth looking at. It's people keep recommending it to me too, and I I know uh, Wes from Linux Unplugged uses it to uh, to set up a private VPN amongst his droplets using the private networking. So it uh, on the private networking interface, he runs Tink over that, and then he has one machine exposed to the internet that has Tink, and then he has a machine at home running Tink, and they all share basically one uh-huh. private LAN. It's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, yeah. So it's worth checking out, Tink, T-I-N-C. Mm-hmm. And that might work for someone as well, yeah. potentially. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, okay. again, though, Tink requires a special client. Um, so yeah, for FreeNAS, the... Advantage to doing something like a Beehive uh, virtual machine is that you don't run into the restrictions of what you're allowed to do in a jail. Uh, you just have your Beehive network card bridged to your real one, and it you know you can do whatever you need to do with the packets. Whereas obviously you can't run uh, an L2TP VPN inside a jail on FreeBSD because the jails don't have access to that level of the networking. 
Well, good question. And if you guys have any suggestions, text snap.reddit.com and leave it for 275. I'll be checking them, and perhaps someone else will be checking them as well to see what you guys think. I think this is a great audience to answer that. This is 275. Oh, yeah. Right. Thank you. 275. I'm in the future already, Alan, because we're all done with the feedback, and that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read on your own after the show. And some of these links were provided by our intelligence network over at techsnap.reddit.com. And, you know, this first link came to us really from the chat room. They were mentioning, reminding us that there is that ZFS book out there, FreeBSD well, Master. The second one. Uh, Number two. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I guess this came out during BSD Camp, but I was so busy doing BSD Camp stuff that yep. we didn't really mention it on the show very and much. And you guys have it available on uh, Amazon, of course, all the different varieties. It's on iBooks, uh, Gumroad, too, in a no DRM format, which is cool. Yep. That's really cool. And, of course, you can uh, get it in print. Can, yeah, and you can get it in print, and you can buy it directly from the publisher, uh, which is Tilted Windmill Press, which is basically Michael Lucas's own private uh, publishing company. And so with that option all of the money goes to the authors, and you get a DRM-free... Uh, hmm. You get a zip file with a bunch of different formats, but there's a PDF, a Mobi, a EPUB, whatever would work best whatever on your you reader, want. but you, all of them with no DRM. Where do I go, Alan? Where do I go? ZFSbook.com. Pow. And so, so this is uh, FreeBSD Mastery Advanced ZFS. Yeah. Uh, so this is... Uh, expands on the first book and covers things like replication, how to tune it for databases, how to tune it for BitTorrent, how to tune it for uh, various different cases, how to deal with different problems. And it just goes in a lot more detail than the first book did. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as with the first book, uh, slightly less than the first book, but almost everything uh, would also apply if you want to do ZFS on Linux. Uh, so while it's part of the FreeBSD Mastery series, ZFS is the same on every operating system. The only things that will be different is a couple of the sysctls we mentioned uh, might be, you know, slash sys slash something or slash process something. Sure. Be slightly differently, uh, would be stored in a slightly different place on Linux, but the setting name will be the same in everything because ZFS is the same on every operating system. Makes sense. So uh, most of it would apply to Lumos and so on as well. Whatever operating system you're using is pretty much the same. It's just... Uh, there might be a couple of FreeBSD-specific things in the book, but as long as you know a little bit about BSD and uh, know what you're doing on the operating system you're targeting, uh, the book will be able to help you with that one as well. So I want to I want to start uh, our roundup stories with a follow-up story that we've really been covering since the news originally broke um, a while ago, and that is some good news now. Microsoft has won that landmark appeal over seizure of foreign emails. Recall this, uh, I think they were, it was in Ireland, the data center. Yeah, and, so the uh, data center that Microsoft was using for Europe was in Ireland, and the U.S. government wanted to be able to seize any emails over there or something like that. So that is the fact that Microsoft fought that case and won that case is great, and mm -hmm. it's really exciting to continue to follow a story and be able to give you, hopefully, now maybe there'll be an appeal, but hopefully. Well, uh, yes, I imagine uh, maybe even rather than an appeal, the government will just find a different way to do it and, uh, or, you know, be like, okay, Microsoft, if you don't give us the files, we're just going to charge you $100,000 a day. Like Could they be. Did to Could be. All right, so sounds like we got some bad news for Redis. Tell me about this. Uh, no, this is just uh, bad administrators. Oh. Uh, so a researcher has found more than 6,000 Redis installs that are exposed to the internet and have no authentication set up. Yeah, it's not really Redis's which I, fault. Which I do believe is the default for Redis, um, and you're meant to bind it to your LAN, not to the WAN, and people accidentally put it on the internet. Again, not really directly Redis's fault. Yeah, 
but maybe they could uh, improve their documentation of that a little bit more. But in general, people need to remember that things shouldn't be on the internet if they don't need to be. And if they do, they need to have authentication and it has to be strong and have rate limits and so on. Now, you guys know I'm a huge fan of the Comcast Corporation. I think they're just a great ISP and haven't caused me any issues this episode at all. Um, <laughs> that's why this next story doesn't get me fired up. Compass is, Compass, uh, Comcast is expanding their usage caps uh, and still pretending like it's necessary and still pretending like it's a trial as they roll it out. They continue to, this is from TechDirt, Comcast continues to expand the company's usage cap trial into more and more markets. As a clever, lumbering monopoly, Comcast executives believe they, if they move slowly enough, consumers won't realize they're the frog in the boiling pot. Last week, Comcast quietly notified customers that the company's caps are expanding once again, this time into Chicago and other parts of Illinois, as well as parts of Indiana and Michigan. Comcast recently raised its cap, though, from 300 gigabytes to 1 one terabyte in response to some signs they were getting, some signals from the FCC. Now, the agency might finally wake up and start poking at Comcast, so they thought, mm, we'll up that a little bit to a terabyte. Yeah, so they up it to a terabyte, that's only going to be a very small number of people that are going to run into the cap, and uh, that should be enough to keep the FCC from yeah. hassling them. Yeah. So uh, a terabyte, I think most people can live with currently, yeah. although you know, eventually that won't be enough. Yeah, uh, But, you know, 300 gigabytes, you could easily run into that. Although, you know, when I first got it, it was like 75 gigabytes for me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm, that's not going to be enough. They really, I, f I think it's funny how they try to justify it to the customers, though. So check this out. This is the language that they use when they send it out to inform the lucky new customers. Uh, they were going to be included in the terabyte internet experience, as if this is a glorious reward being doled out. Yes, you can have a whole terabyte internet. It's actually no. What we're going to do is limit how much internet. You yeah, can we're have. taking the same internet you had and just applying a terabyte limit and calling it your new terabyte internet experience. Wow. Although, so okay, uh, most Comcast is like they claim to give you a lot of what speed. Well, they it varies, but I'd say anywhere from twenty to hundred megabits. Right. So if you have. If you use one megabit 24-7 for a month in one direction, that's 350 gigabytes. Well, we so that means, it means if you're, you're paying for 20 to 100 megabits, yeah. but with a terabyte limit, it means if you use more than three yeah. constantly, so you'll go over. Just recently, when we were, oh, we were on the phone with Comcast trying to diagnose some of the issues we're having, they told Angela that uh, we have a 250 gigabyte cap. Now, the, now, we stream the live stream 24-7 from the studio at about a megabit. Plus we 350 gigabytes right there. Plus, we upload all the shows. Plus, we frequently, frequently are doing uh, remote video calls. Plus, there is a lot of online entertainment consumed here at the studio. I mean, a lot of digital content consumed here at the studio. It, it, the, so we're talking to these people on the, on the line, and they're telling me I have this cap. And I'm, t and I'm sitting there thinking, one of the things we do uses 250 gigs. Like, there is no way we have that. And we might actually hit a terabyte. It's possible. Oh, yeah. We have well, uh, in the past when I've checked it. Yeah. So, so I just looked at mine. Mm -hmm. uh, 1.5 terabytes out and 250 gigs in in the last 24 hours. Wow. In the 24 hours? <laughs> uh, and, oh, this graph doesn't go back to the beginning of the month because... Because of uh, all, the, all of the things. I, I, I built new uh, monitoring systems, so it only, I only have a week of data here. In the last uh, week, I've done uh, 15 terabytes in and 1.7, or uh, 15 terabytes out and 1.7 terabytes in. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's serious work stuff going on in my system, not. Yeah. 
Yeah. But still. So tell me about all the things, Alan. Five no five easy applications. Yeah. Uh, so this one is uh, the researcher who uh, brought us the MD5 collision uh, ex- uh, virus thing last week uh, has this other GitHub repo called All the Things, and it's a uh, application whitelisting bypass for Windows. Hmm. So you compile you compile this one binary as a DLL called All the Things at DLL, and then gives you five different ways you can end up running that as a regular user and have it uh, run your application. So. You know, if you, if application whitelisting is set up, Windows should not let you run any program that's not on their list of safe programs, right? But you can use any of these uh, four, five different systems in Windows to run a DLL and execute whatever codes in it, and it never checks the signature on that at all. So it's uh, five ways that you can bypass the application whitelist and run whatever application you want on a Windows machine. Love it. Check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. In fact, link for all the Roundup items, of course, is in the show notes. Now, the next story in the Roundup is something I want to just keep my eye on. I'm putting it in here to market in TechSnap. BitTorrent is launching streaming news network during the Republican convention. So it's their live streaming service powered by BitTorrent, which is what the company has now pivoted to focus on. BitTorrent Live. What do you think about this? Uh, peer-to-peer live stuff with low latency is almost impossible, it would seem like. I don't know how well it would work. Kind of interesting that we choose the Republican convention as a way to do it. Like I understand it's a big news event. So I think that's what it is, right? And they want to be a yeah. they want news. I guess pro- it was the big get that they could get. Yeah, probably. Um, probably yeah. they do have some money. I, I guess. They, well, I guess they failed to get it. Um, was the, the other big one that's happening? I think actually this weekend is uh, the uh, Street Fighter tournament in Las Vegas. <laughs> it's going to be on like ESPN and yeah. Twitch oh, and a yeah. bunch of other things. <laughs> One of our customers was looking at doing it, but the buying the rights to stream it is like a million dollars, and they're like, "Yeah, no." Yeah. Well, but be interesting yeah. to see. Um, I'll give it know. a try as long as I don't have to install any plugins or any additional software. I imagine you will need some BitTorrent software, right? And that just seems like it's. How many times are we going to go? How many times are we going to try that? How many times are we going to try that? Give me a break. But if it ended up being able to be built into VLC, that's one thing, but I doubt sure. BitTorrent's going to do that, right? Yeah, or if um, it could be part of an HTML5 standard where my browser was, could work with the video tag, then that'd be fine. Yeah, but... But this is, in 2016, having to go get a plug-in for my web browser to watch a video yeah, stream. but also <laughs> having to uh, upload in order to watch for BitTorrent to work seems like, you know, the di- BitTorrent-based... Distribution really doesn't work for mobile devices where you're paying for data. Is there any way they could proxy an RTMP stream? So, like, you know what we do, so you could just watch it in a desktop application and not even use your web browser. Is is there any way they could do something? They'd have to just basically use a traditional streaming infrastructure to do that, though. Right. So this is <laughs> really what it's going to be is is it'll have to be delayed kind of like uh, HLSs where you're doing chunks yeah. and you're just downloading the chunks over BitTorrent. And people have done a BitTorrent client in JavaScript, right? Yes, because we saw that whiteboard the other week. Remember like yeah. a month ago yeah. or so we saw that whiteboard in BitTorrent in yeah. a browser? Yeah. So I guess you could do that and to, to pull HLS chunks over BitTorrent. It seems like the WebRTC could offer a solution here too, um, but then that wouldn't well, be using Torrent. meant a little different, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this next story is going to get clicks when you put the Sega Saturn in the headlines. Sega Saturn's DRM was cracked now, almost 23 years after its launch. Uh, I think it's a... Uh, Somebody was finally motivated. You yeah. Know, that many people, there were no pirated games for the, the Sega Saturn, but this guy uh, has managed to replace... Um, a common reason why Sega Saturn's die is the disk drive dies. Mm. Uh, and so this guy's got it. So he replaced the video CD 
port with the ability to plug in a USB stick and have your games on that. Smart. Which uh, brings those existing consoles back to life. But uh, the researcher who was doing this only wanted it to because uh, Sega Saturn had a unique way of doing chiptunes. Oh, jeez. I thought you were going to say for uh, Crazy Taxi. Okay. No, it's just uh, you wanted to do, uh, create old-style music with it. Uh, and that's why he broke the DRM was so that he could. That's all it takes, right? On it. That's hilarious. So I haven't really uh, followed up much on this one, but again, I think in the roundup, it's worth just us taking a note of MIT's anonymous online communications protocol, Rifle, could beat Tor at its own game. Oh, that's right. A team of researchers led by an MIT grad student uh, aims to leapfrog Tor's anonymizing technique with a brand new platform called Rifle. Um, and I don't. And it's uh, supposed to be more anonymous. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, so some of the the flaws we've ended up finding in Tor. I, you know, really, we could use some serious competition, couldn't we? The key advance made by uh, the team was implementing uh, it in a way where both weaknesses of Tor are avoided. That uh, they talk about in this article. There's two different weaknesses that people are really kicking around right now. So they've implemented this particular thing. Now, I, again, I, like I said, I haven't read into it yet, but I think it's kind of an interesting claim. So it's probably worth reading more on. So I'm going to add it into the read later queue. Interesting that they, they've also been experimenting with it for different speeds, trying to get the speed up. They say they try to provide as much traffic analysis resistance as possible. Um, and they say by Tor trying to provide the lowest latency possible, it opens it up to certain tacks. So that gives you some insight to maybe what they're doing. Interesting. Oh. Uh, the chat room's uh, making fun of you saying it's pronounced riffle, not rifle. I thought maybe. I thought maybe. But you know what? rifle has one F. Screw those guys. They never had to read it out loud before me, so they don't get to say. Yeah, uh, so, you know, that's what they say. Is, um, if, when someone pronounces words wrong, it's because they, they learn the word by reading, not by hearing. Yeah, now, when they it. have a podcast and they have to say it out loud in front of a live audience well, before I, I meant, do, yes. then, I'll, then I'll take their pronunciation. No, I'm kidding. Um, so NBC Universal has a patent, and it's a yes, way to so detect BitTorrent pirates in real time. Yeah, so NBC Universal is granted a patent um, uh, for detecting BitTorrent swarms, and the idea is that they can figure out when a show is being pirated, when it first getting set up, so they can kill it. You know, most TV shows are downloaded within a couple of days of when the show was aired, and so finding being able to find the swarm two weeks later, you're not going to find anybody still. Sure. You're not going to find very many people still. Yeah. Uh, however. This was a patent they originally applied for in 2009, so it's not clear that it's actually that useful because it doesn't seem like they've uh, stopped any BitTorrenting uh, in the last five years. They ought to patent a way to deliver content consumers in a method that they wanted, and maybe that could just solve the problem altogether. Well, if they patented a way to come up with content people actually want, that'd be one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then delivering it in a way people were yes. okay with. Oh, what an idea. So this, I think you caught the story of, uh, so we were just talking about Tor. The Tor project is uh, sort of rebooting with a new board. Well, rebooting might be putting a little strong, but that's how the New York Times put it. Uh, well, they, uh, you know, they had some problems with people recently. Jacob leaving. Applebaum, yep. yep. Uh, and uh, so amongst others that are joining the board, I think I saw Schneier's name in there, Bruce yes, Schneier. Uh, Bruce Schneier and Matt Blaze. Uh, yeah. Matt Blaze is the, uh, he's a professor now, but he was the guy that broke the clipper chip, which was the... FBI's, you know, uh, backdoored crypto they were trying to push out on us in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a good person probably to have around. So uh, here's an interesting article over at Ars Technica. It's now easy to see if leaked passwords work on other sites. A freely available tool follows the release of more than 642 million account credentials. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how useful this tool really is, but uh, it's a little tool. You type in your password uh, and it 
tries your login on uh, you know Reddit, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, a bunch of other things, um, you know, to make sure you're not still reusing your password, and not knowing it or something. I'm mm. slightly confused. Mm. Uh, the the guy who wrote it was using the uh, a randomly generated password, but that was only eight characters long, and it was reusing it for all the sites, and it got link uh, leaked as part of I think the LinkedIn leak, um, and he was like, oh. So that means everybody knows my Reddit password now. Uh, and so he was using this tool. But uh, it's a little unclear that it's actually that valuable. Uh, and, you know, but if it's a tool where you can look at the source code and make sure it's not stealing your password, it's a, somewhat useful. Uh, although Ars points out that it, this tool is more useful for an attacker than it is for you as an end user. Because you as an end user probably know if you're using the same password at more than one site. Um, whereas hmm. uh, an attacker could uh, use it to feed in a list of stolen passwords from LinkedIn and see how many other people uh, use the same password at some other site. Very true. Interesting tool, anyway. Hmm. All right, uh, next story. I guess uh, Mozilla has somebody over there that's read the art of the deal because they've made a really great deal uh, with Yahoo. Under their deal with... I like how the press has made this Marissa Meyer's fault, too. Like, under the Meyer deal. It was all her idea. Under the Meyer deal, uh, they could walk away... Uh, with a whole, with like Mozilla can walk away, not have to return the money if Yahoo has a new owner that they simply just don't like. Well, that's not quite how it works. So uh, when they negotiated this deal back in 2014, when Marissa really wanted to make uh, the default search in Firefox be Yahoo, Yahoo instead of Google, yeah. to try to revive Yahoo's search thing, which the previous CEO had basically tried to kill off, um, as part of the deal, they accepted Mozilla's terms, which were they get $375 million a year for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if Mo- if Yahoo gets bought by somebody and and Mozilla doesn't like that person because you know they're going to do something that doesn't jive with Mozilla's open internet goals and so on, uh, Mozilla gets to walk away and go use someone else for search. But Yahoo has to keep paying them the three hundred seventy five million dollars yep. until twenty nineteen. Yep, isn't that great? So, so the deal is actually that. If Mozilla, for whatever reason, decides they don't like the new owners of Yahoo, they can walk away and start using someone else, but Yahoo has to keep paying them until the end of the contract. It's anyway. a pretty good deal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at the time, Yahoo wasn't considering selling to anybody. You know, Yahoo is worth more and bigger and so on. Uh, but now there are apparently bids in the 3.5 to 5 million range for people to buy Yahoo. And uh, as part of that, Yahoo's been disclosing the fact that, oh, well, remember that if you buy us, you're going to have to keep paying uh, Yahoo or uh, Mozilla. And if they don't like what you try to do with the search and the page, then they can just walk away and stop sending you traffic and you're still paying them $375 million a year. How about that? Well, we got another hot story for you, a real hot story. Uh, web hosting databases for sale. We got a summer special. Yeah. This is from the, the Salted Hash over at CSO Online. Uh, but Mac Forums, Hotscripts.com, and Web Hosting Talk, which is a forum I frequent uh, because they have uh, you know uh, cloud providers and dedicated server providers, and everybody's a uh, good place to see reviews of different providers, whether it's you know cloud providers or dedicated server rental places or whatever, uh, and just the you know internet hosting industry in general, uh, lots of co-location, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, apparently the databases for those are up for sale on the dark web somewhere. Uh, apparently they only want $1,900 for the whole web hosting talk database. <laughs> it's a summer sale. <laughs> uh, it's like if, if you've ever wondered, uh, where can I get uh, the passwords that a bunch of people use from like every hosting provider in the world? It's like most of the places I buy from have an account there where they post their mm. sales and so on. Uh, in the, and, and they have a dedicated advertising forum and 
or you know, if I'm looking for a new server in like Denver, I just crawl through there and find a place in Denver and check them out. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, that's kind it. of a shame. So hopefully, uh, nobody buys your credentials. <laughs> Now, the last story in the roundup is kind of interesting. A leaky database leaves Oklahoma police and a bank vulnerable to intruders. Yeah, so this database, uh, the researcher could just log into it because it had no username and password set. And it had uh, images of the various doors, locks, the RFID access panels, and uh, the controller board for the alarm system. But also had information about whether each different thing was working or not, what the warranty status was. It's like... With that information, you could go in there and social engineer. It's like, yeah, the warranty on this thing recently expired. I, we're gonna we're here to replace it, or let's make it. We'll make we're calling up and we're making an appointment to come next week and replace it. And then oh, that'd we, be even better. You know, just turn it off or whatever, and then we can break in whenever we want, uh, or um, you know things like that. Or um, there's ones it just tells you a list of things that aren't working. It's like, oh, the alarm on the side door on this government building isn't working, so I can just go and break in, and it's not going to set off the alarm. Wow. Yeah, that literally happened, it looks like, in this case. Yeah. She's RFID access panels that weren't working, door locks that were offline. Yep. No. <laughs> Jeez. It's like, and no password required to access the database. Yeah. It just falls out on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Well, there you go. That's that's a, a note to end on right there. Please send us your emails. I think we're at inbox zero now. So you can do that by going to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Choose TechSnap from the dropdown and send your question or just email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Roundup items and potentially big news story items can be submitted to techsnap.reddit.com. The show's live on Thursdays. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time. If you're on the uh, Pacific Coast, it is 1 p.m., which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom. We've also got available on jblive.fm if you want a nice low bandwidth audio-only experience. And if you want to go real low, like you're on the car, you're in the car and you got like a data cap because you haven't switched over to Ting, well, we got jblive.am, which is low bit rate and it uh, pretty much streams even over a 3G connection. I've tried it. It's great. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 